Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This episode is particularly special because we are physically in the same space. We're, we're socially distant, as you'll see in a minute. Um, and my, my guest today is Clark Neely, who is Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. And we're going to talk about all of the things, not all of the things, because there's too many things broken with our justice system. But at this particular time, we're having all these debates. Uh, welcome, Clark. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, and uh, you're, you're our guinea pig, so we're. <laughs> it's really one of the things I learned about about Zoom, and and all of those those things is that the technology is, is life saving, but it's actually hard to have a conversation when you're disconnected because you can't um, you can't the other person probably can't see you even though you're looking at each other, and it's so. It, I'm excited about about this, and and I'm, I'm glad you could make it. I appreciate it. By the way, did you know that they're now using lawyers instead of rats for laboratory experience? <laughs> it's because there are more lawyers than rats. Yeah. Some people actually like rats, and there are some things a rat just won't do. Well, I'm also reading that rats are turning cannibalistic, so maybe maybe lawyers led that trend. <laughs> and I'm an economist, so so we can take an informal poll of our audience, yes. like who's a more hated profession, uh, lawyers or or economists. But but you are actually a, a, a longtime practicing lawyer. Uh, you've been at Cato for three years, and and you were at the Institute for Justice, another one of my favorite organizations. Tell me what you did there. Well, I sued bureaucrats, basically. Uh, as you may know, the Institute for Justice uh, litigates in four areas, uh, property rights, economic liberty, free speech, and school choice. I did a little bit of all of those things uh, during the 17 years I was there, but what I really focused on uh, was economic liberty, which is essentially, uh, at IJ, what that means is suing government officials for enforcing occupational licensing laws that really have no business being on the books. Yeah. And you were a co-counsel in the celebrated Heller case. Yes. Um, this means a lot to my wife and I. We were able to own legally own handguns to protect ourselves uh, because of your litigation. Remind people what that was. Yeah, so uh, Washington, D.C., uh, from about 1978 on, had the most sweeping ban on firearms anywhere in the country. Uh, handguns were completely illegal. Uh, you could own a shotgun or a rifle, but the law provided you could never put a round in the chamber. Uh, so effectively, they had a ban on all functional firearms. And so uh, my friend Bob Levy, uh, Alan Gura, and I decided to challenge that law. Um, as you may know, the Supreme Court had sort of mysteriously not weighed in on the meaning of the Second Amendment for 200 years. And uh, with one exception, all of the lower courts had held, all the lower federal courts had held that the Second Amendment is essentially meaningless. Um, but that changed in 2001 when the Fifth Circuit, which maybe not coincidentally covers Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, bucked that trend, went the other way, set the conditions, uh, what we call a circuit split, meaning a disagreement among the lower courts. So we were able to exploit that opportunity and get a case to the U.S. Supreme Court that held for the first time in again, over 200 years, that the Second Amendment really does mean something. It protects an individual right to own a gun. Yeah, and, and we'll get into this, but one of the unfortunately rare instances where the court stepped up and defended constitutional limits on, on government power, be it at the state, city, whatever level. Right. Um, and you're also um, a uh, adjunct professor at George Mason University, the, the Scalia, what is the Scalia Center called? The Antonin Scalia Law School. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I teach a, a class there on public interest litigation and advocacy, and uh, it's been real fun. So the students seem very uh, into it, and I think it's a good skill for people to have. So, Kate, like I, I love this uh, um, 
there's all these silly arguments on Twitter, which I participate in. Well, I don't argue on Twitter, but I, I like to see where people are coming from different perspectives. And, and one of the accusations, I don't know why libertarians get blamed for everything, but um, because we're, we're never in charge of anything, but um, we were um, uh, routinely accused of not speaking up on, on police abuse and, and racial disparities in a criminal justice system. And you and IJ and Cato, and, and certainly as long as we've been around, we've been talking about this stuff incessantly yeah. for many years. Um, Cato has a, a history of this. How, how far back does it go? Does it go all the way back to Cato's founding? Was there a focus on this issue? I, you know, I wasn't there. That, that was 40 years ago. But certainly uh, my colleague Walter Olson did a blog post a couple of weeks ago where he documented uh, going back 25 years of very um, intensive engagement by Cato with criminal yeah. justice and policing issues. So, you know, I don't understand that either, but I don't feel particularly moved uh, to, to enter into those debates because I know the truth. And if people want to throw rocks, that's up to them. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the cognitive dissonance, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick on plenty on the right in this conversation, but um, uh, critics of, of the abuse of power when it comes to policing and the criminal justice system on the left, um, they, they seem to get that. And, and Bernie Sanders absolutely was, was very articulate on mass incarceration. Um, but it's hard for me to imagine a big government that does everything and regulates everything that doesn't inherently abuse power when it comes to enforcing all of those laws. And that's, that's sort of one of the intellectual disconnects on the left. And, and the right has an equally um, inexplicable disconnect when they talk about um, their critique of government power, except when it comes to the men in blue. Blue lives matter. And so we'll pick on everybody today, but but I really want to talk about you. You did my show for me, and I really appreciate that. But in the midst of of all of the uh, righteous anger about the murder of George Floyd, you you whipped off a blog post that 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 summarizes probably the last twenty years of of your work and and everything that Cato's done. And I want to get this title right because it's it's on point. America's criminal justice system is rotten to the core. What do you mean? Well, it's uh, completely lost its moral and political legitimacy because of the way it operates. And um, I identify three basic uh, pathologies. And, uh, I, and I want to go in detail on all those. Sure. Yeah. So the, in a nutshell, um, the first point is that we, we vastly overcriminalize. The criminal justice system should be um, used only to discourage and punish conduct that represents an actual threat to the very fabric of civil society. Uh, and if you go beyond that, uh, what you're doing is you're authorizing state violence against people uh, who, who have not threatened the very fabric of civil society or who haven't hurt another person. That's completely immoral. Um, the next problem is that we've moved to a kind of a point and convict system of adjudicating criminal charges um, because of the prevalence of coercive plea bargaining. Um, trials are basically almost extinct. If a prosecutor accuses you of something, it's almost certain that you will eventually plead guilty to it because they'll apply so much pressure. And then third, all of this takes place in an atmosphere that I think can best be described as near zero accountability for law enforcement. So the people who are out there making decisions uh, and bringing these laws to bear on the rest of us do so knowing that they will face no meaningful accountability if they violate your rights. And that's obviously problematic. So at the, at the end of this, and I want to go through each of those because I um, uh, certainly the second point I had never really considered in a systemic way, although I'm, I'm keenly aware that that's how the world works. But at the end, you, you mentioned without, um, 
any explicit judgment, um, the, the question of, of systemic racism when it comes to the justice system. And, and my point, before I ask you what you think, is that, um, yes, there's systemic racism, but the, the, the system is the part that we should and can do something about. We can't do anything about a person that has, has racism in their hearts. I mean, we can, we can out them and ostracize them and judge them for that, but, but it's, it strikes me that the system, and the system is that monopoly force of, of government power that we give to police, we give to judges, we give to prosecutors, um, we give to prisons and all that stuff. And, and to me, we, we libertarians actually are keenly aware of what happens when you, when you give someone too much power, anybody. Um, they abuse it. Um, what is your opinion on, I mean, and you say like the, the outcomes are clearly uh, racially skewed, um, but what is your opinion on the, on the question of systemic racism? Well, I think we, we have to be very careful to acknowledge at the outset that uh, the system uh, is unduly tolerant of overtly racist cops. Let's just say what it is. Uh, there was actually a, a study, and I, I can't remember the name of the group, and I should commit to memory, but they did, a, they did a great study where they looked at Facebook pages of police throughout the country, and what they found was astonishing, just the, the sheer amount of overt racism. So it's I think that there's a kind of a consensus emerging that overt racism on the part of individual police officers is not the whole explanation by any stretch. It may not even be the most significant part of the explanation, but, but it's there. And, and I think it's incumbent on us to recognize that it, that kind of overt personal racism is tolerated by this community much more than it should be. So that's point one. Point two, I think, is that uh, there is a sort of a history of uh, using organs of the state um, for racial suppression. We did that during slavery, did that during Jim Crow. Uh, I think to some extent that has continued, uh, in, you know, in a sort of continuous line since then. Third, and, and this may be where, you know, you and I would be most interested in focusing because it, it, it picks up on, on what I'm sure is an interest of yours, which is certain public choice dynamics. Um, if you have a system uh, that uh, has strong incentives for people who operate the machinery of criminal justice uh, to essentially uh, be relatively indifferent to the quality of the arrest or the conviction. In other words, a police officer, the average police officer is relatively indifferent whether they make an arrest for a low-level drug distribution on the one hand or a homicide on the other. They get roughly the same credit. Mm -hmm. The first one's a lot easier to go on. You can even manufacture a, a, right. a, a drug arrest, right? right? So what you get, I think, is you get a system that is heavily inclined towards enforcing um, fundamentally unjust laws. If you're going to do that, systemically. You're going to want to target a population that has the least ability to push back in the political process. You're going to want to target a historically marginalized and politically disenfranchised population. And guess who that is? Yeah. Oftentimes communities of color. And I think that's also a big part of the explanation why uh, crim American criminal justice is so racially disparate. Yeah. And I and obviously, yeah, I do focus on that last one because that, that would be our critique of, of any expansive government program, you know, and they always sound so good, but the the unintended consequences, perhaps, or or at least the um, unwillingness to acknowledge that that giving people such such a blank check to pursue whatever the policy is is going to create perverse incentives and and weird outcomes that were probably not intended um, by the legislators that create that. I, I think perhaps criminal justice is a little bit different because there are histories uh, that go back, I think the system's very much linked to um, the reaction to um, emancipating the slaves and, and, and all of that stuff. But, 
and and maybe we'll go there, maybe we won't. I, I don't know if that's an area of your expertise, but but let's let's go back to these three before we get too off. Um, Overcriminalization, and I, I think this is interesting because depending on on which tribe you're in and what day of the week it is, it's either the right or the left that's really angry about overcriminalization. I, I thought the right was really angry about overcriminalization, and and I for one thought that that a lot of the 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 micro applications of the lockdowns, you know, uh, prescribing in Michigan that you couldn't buy seeds to plant a garden in your backyard. Um, preventing a mom and a daughter from playing in a playground where she's alone. And, you know, you saw these videos on on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube that um, everyone's so pissed off because you got a, you got a bunch of cops uh, handcuffing a mom in front of her daughter and dragging her off. And, and um, in that particular instance, it struck me that sort of uh, Team Red was all pissed off. Uh, Team Blue was mad at mom for not socially distancing enough and didn't understand why it is that anyone would would do something like that. Um, but it applies to everything, like everything, um, no matter what you do. And there's there's famous conservative books like um, Every Day You Break. I don't know how many laws. I forget what the name of the book is. Three Felonies a Day by yeah. Harvey Silverglade. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that, that was celebrated on the right. But um, so much of this is is really an abandonment of the Constitution. Yeah, that's your argument. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the Constitution, properly understood, uh, provides that you you can't do violence to another person without a good reason. And and interestingly enough, that's what basic morality provides as well. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes that the Supreme Court has made, and I more or less wrote a book about this, is interpreting the Constitution as a fundamentally amoral document uh, that is nothing more than this kind of bare bones framework for how to operate a government, more or less divorced from the values that are articulated in our other founding document, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Randy Barnett, who you mentioned earlier, Tim Sanifer and others um, have done wonderful scholarship in this area, uh, demonstrating, at least to me they have demonstrated, that an attempt to read the Constitution um, apart from the Declaration of Independence, so that all you see when you read the Constitution is this sort of bare bones framework for how to operate a government um, is uh, kind of a fool's errand and you're going to end up going to wrong places and wrong results. And one of the most important of those is the judiciary's fundamentally mistaken belief that the government can put you, a citizen, in a cage for pretty much any reason or no reason whatsoever. They won't say it exactly that way, but that is the significance of the constitutional doctrine they've developed. And it's hard to think of a more disastrous misunderstanding of the Constitution than that it allows the government to bring the ultimate sanction to bear on people for no particularly good reason. Yeah, and that's it strikes me as... as an ultimate perversion of, of what the idea of America was. By the way, Senator Mike Lee was, was on the show and he's talking, uh, his latest book was The Lost Declaration and he makes that exact same argument that if you want to understand the principles of America, you need to read the Declaration first. Um, but this, this idea that um, Americans would have the largest percentage of our population in prison seems crazy. Like, and, and sometimes when you say that to people, they don't believe it. Yep. Um, but it, it goes back to this, this corruption of, of constitutional principles. That's right. Um, we should be mortified, I think, by that. We have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. We, are the, we incarcerate far more people than any other country in the world. Uh, and, and not just a little bit. I mean, it's like four or five times the rate of similarly situated 
liberal democracies. It's, yeah. it's something to be embarrassed about. And I think it flows from a couple of basic points. Uh, the first one is that we criminalize a significant amount of conduct that is non-wrongful. It's non-harmful, doesn't hurt anybody, doesn't threaten the fabric of civil society. And lots of perfectly decent, otherwise law-abiding citizens wish to engage in that behavior, and they continue engaging in that behavior, even though it's illegal. You might have thought we'd learned this lesson during Prohibition from 1920 to 1933. We didn't. So now we're fighting another prohibition, uh, the war on drugs, and we're learning, well, I don't know if we're learning, but we're experiencing exactly the same lessons. So it's not that the drug war is the whole story, but it's a big part of the story. Uh, the other problem is not just that you prohibit conduct that lots of people want to engage in. Um, when you have so many laws in the books, I mean, there are 5,000 or so federal criminal laws and countless state and local crimes. You create a situation where it's impossible to know whether you're in compliance, especially when you divorce criminal law from basic morality. Even consulting your own moral intuitions is no longer enough to tell you whether or not you're violating a criminal law. So you create a situation where there's really no point right. in trying to comply. Yeah. You just go on about your life and hope that, you know, prosecutors never point the, you know, put, put you on their radar screen. And yeah. that's really all you can hope. Because as you pointed out a moment ago, or you suggested a moment ago, virtually all of us have committed a serious crime. By the time you're an adult, yes, you will have committed a serious crime. Somebody puts your life under enough of a microscope, they'll find it. Yeah. I think I committed multiple crimes just going to the grocery store over the last four months because the the rules changed every day. Yep. And and I was very much trying to to respect the other people in the stores and all that stuff, but but I couldn't use my intuition sometimes. I had right. to I had to um and and we had a mayor doing it. I'm like I didn't even realize the mayor could could uh, intern me in my own house, but that but that happened. But we won't go down that rabbit hole because that's <laughs> I've talked about it too much on this show, but uh the uh, uh, well, let's talk about the drug war because there are like um, the drug war didn't originate with Richard Nixon, but he he was using it for explicitly political purposes to sort of feed the fires of of, of fear and racism, um, that kind of thing. And I think a lot of um, you know the politics of criminal justice, and you're seeing it with uh, with Donald Trump today when he says law and order. I don't know if he knows the historical context of what that means. Um, I, I often doubt that he knows the historical context of a lot of stuff that he says. I think he's just doing political arbitrage and he's, he's mm -hmm. testing things and if it works, he says it more and if it doesn't work, he just, he just says, I never said that. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's, he's echoing that, that law and order mentality that has created a lot of this over-criminalization and, and incarceration. Um, but, but I think the drug war is the, the largest culprit and it, and it goes back to people's ability or, or, or police officers' ability to sort of go after low-hanging fruit. Who can't defend themselves? How do, we, how do we get easy convictions and how do we rack up the points? And, and there's, there's, a, there's a cash value in that too. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I actually think um, if, if for some perverse reason you wanted to generate absolutely the maximum amount of crime, of like real crime, you know, uh, violent crime, property crimes, things like that. If you wanted to generate absolutely as much crime in a given society as possible, you would, you would try to do two things. First of all, you would make something illegal that lots of people want. Could be coffee, could be alcohol, could be drugs. Because what will happen is that the people will continue to consume that thing, and of course a black market will arise to provide those illegal goods. And there's almost nothing on the planet more, more violent than a black market. Mm -hmm. The second thing you would want to do is to make sure that you fail to socialize as many young men as possible. And the drug war achieves both of those things. It has created a black market with all of the violence and the real crime that comes with it. Um, and by 
targeting particularly young men, you remove them from their communities and they are no longer available to socialize the next generation of young men or to help socialize that next generation. And there are a few things on the planet more dangerous than an unsocialized young man. Look at any human culture, even back before civilization. One of the most important things in any human society is to ensure that young men are properly socialized because if they're not, they go off and they do violent things for a variety of reasons. So I think that's a big part of why we have uh, so much crime in this country because we've created a black market, a huge one, and then we've ensured that in, particularly in certain communities, young men are systematically not socialized. And, and I don't mean socialized in, in a good way, brought up in a way to, to learn things like honor and, and restraint and respect. Um, and certain codes develop even in the absence of that socialization, but they're not always healthy codes. And uh, I, I think that's a big part of the explanation for, for why we find ourselves in the position that we are. And what is the, uh, the, your typical police officer? What, talk about the incentives that they face. Uh, and let's, let's talk about Minneapolis, since we all know about Minneapolis and, and how their system was, was clearly rotten to the core. Right. Well, <clears throat> let's take it at kind of a macro level first. Uh, we have something I sometimes refer to as the carceral industrial complex. Depending on how you count, we either have hundreds of thousands or even millions of people who are fundamentally in the business of putting bodies in cages. Uh, some people are in the arrest part of that supply chain. Some people are in the prosecution part of the supply chain, and some people are in the incarceration part of the supply chain. But they're all part of the same industry, uh, which is, again, the incarceration industry. And they're rational, actor <clears throat> excuse me, they're rational actors, and so they try to maximize output. And I think we can trace that all the way back to what we see on the street. Uh, police officers are under significant pressure to be productive, just like any other uh, employee. And the way you show productivity as a police officer is one of two ways. You either issue citations, traffic tickets, things like that, because those generate revenue. And yeah. many police officers are under explicit pressure to generate revenue um, and or you make arrests. Uh, but if you aren't out there doing one or both of those things, you are not being productive and you are going to have a very unpleasant interview uh, with your supervisor. And so um, when we have the, the incredible uh, web and, fra and framework that we've talked about a moment ago, this over-criminalization. I mean, hell, you can't operate a car for more than 30 seconds without violating some sort of a uh, part of the traffic code. Yeah. And so all of us are just kind of, uh, I mentioned to you before we started talking, we're kind of all just prey animals in, in that environment. Any person, if you just sort of figure out, you know, think about it long enough, watch them long enough, you'll figure out a way to, at a minimum, issue them a ticket or a citation of some kind. And if you look at them long enough, you'll also figure out a way to arrest them. Yeah. I forget who was talking about this. I was watching a, uh, listening to a podcast the other day and, and the, the process of, of issuing traffic tickets. And we have um, police departments implementing those laws and and it's very much a profit center, uh, particularly when you get to smaller towns. It's like it's like how they fund policing, and it's it's think about a perverse incentive to to pull as many people over. And this, of course, is some of these more horrific examples of police violence. Start with uh, your your backlight was out, and so yeah. they're, so they're fishing for something, right? That's exactly right, and it's unfortunately it's it's spilled over. It's not just. Uh, traffic citations anymore. Uh, in the piece that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, I, I described a, a law in Shreveport, Louisiana, that was just repealed last year that made it illegal to wear baggy pants. Uh, and there were more than 700 people arrested under that law during the time it was on the books, and they only finally repealed it after a police officer shot and killed a man while pursuing him to try to give him a ticket for wearing saggy pants. That's the point we've gotten to. Yeah, that's 
that, that law is insane, by the way, and it it's clearly has a, a racial element to it. Um, but there's you, you could probably write a whole book on insane and, and stupid laws that have been passed. Um, and like, I don't know how deeply you dug into that. Was that just about generating revenue? What what was the what was the public choice expla- explanation for that law? You know, I think it's probably both. I think it generates some revenue, but it's also a way for people to express disapproval of particular uh, groups or the behavior of particular groups. Of course, it has a racial element. Ninety-six percent of people cited under that law were black. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. There is there is a tendency to use the words sort of insane or crazy, but it's not, actually. If you think about it, the Justice, the, uh, Justice Department did a report on Ferguson, Missouri, um, after the unrest there. And, and one of the things they documented was how common it is for small towns in Missouri and elsewhere, but that's where they were focusing, to have all these laws that apply to to the tiniest little details of your life. And just to give you a few examples, uh, and IJ actually ended up bringing a, a lawsuit over some of this. Um, it, there's a town in Missouri where it's illegal to drink a beer while standing at your barbecue. If you don't have screens on your window, you can be cited for that. If the weeds are higher than a certain level in your front lawn, uh, if you cross a street on the wrong part of the, of the crosswalk, you can be cited for that. So it's just, you know, it reminds me, of, I forget what that movie is. It was a Sylvester Stallone movie about the dystopian future where there's these machines that just spit out tickets yeah. uh, every time you say a bad word or, you know, commit an infraction. And there are towns in America that where, where they have arrived, like that, that future is, is the present in those towns. And of course, the big money grab is civil asset forfeiture, which um, actually like the, the worst run in I ever had with with cops, I believe to this day, was all about the fact that I was a young man driving a new car and they were fishing for something. And I was driving into a Neil Young concert and and, and I don't want I don't want to complain about the criminal justice system because I, I suspect that that I don't suffer nearly as much as as people of color do. But um, yeah, they did. They just wanted a car. Yeah, I mean, there was this huge scandal in Las Cruces, New Mexico, because a prosecutor was caught on video conducting a, a you know continuing education program for police, and he was describing to them how they could acquire any car they want. You just follow if you and he specifically said, see a guy driving a nice Mercedes. You want that Mercedes? Follow the guy around until he goes into a sports bar. Wait for him to have a beer. When he comes out, pull it over. It's yours. Yeah. And that's how civil forfeiture works. It's it's the the perversity of the incentives when it comes to American criminal justice almost defy explanation. It's just inconceivable how perverse and fundamentally pathological the system has become. And I do think all of those corruptions um, very much undermine the the proper and legitimate role of law enforcement. And I'm. I am sort of, uh, I mean, institutions matter and incentives matter, but, but I think there's a lot of good cops out there trying to do the right thing, and they get smeared with the actions of, of the guy that murdered George Floyd or, or you know, fill in the blank, because now we see all these things. And, and it's, it's not hard to, to think that, that all cops are that bad. And, but they don't, they don't have an ability to clean up their own house. I think both things are true. I think it's exactly right. There are some really good cops out there, and it must be so hard to be a truly good cop these days. We put them in positions that no one should be in, you know, where you have to decide, for example, you see somebody smoking a joint, you know, do you arrest them or do you turn the other way if you are still in a state where that's illegal? Um, and But you're also right that 
they, they own some of this as well because as an institution, the police have shown themselves uh, very unwilling to get rid of their own apples. One of the best things I've seen on Twitter in a while, which is, I know, a low bar, but uh, somebody had a great comment where he said, um, if, you have, um, if you have 10 cops that constantly violate people's rights and a thousand cops that never violate people's rights but never do anything to try to restrain the 10 who do, then what you have is a thousand and ten bad cops. Yeah, yeah, and that's, and and uh, there's been a lot of talk about police unions. I, I assume you saw the clip of the head of the New York City um, police union. I don't remember his name or the name of the union specifically, but it actually, um, half joking, I was like, is this an outtake from a Martin Scorsese movie? Um, the uh, I believe it's the Sergeant's Benevolent Association of the NYPD yeah. is one of the most insane Twitter accounts that you can follow. You should follow it just to see the insanity that, and I forget the guy's name too, but yeah, it it's it's one of those accounts that, that almost defies parody. You, you, yeah. You're not sure if it's somebody just, you know, doing a bit, but it, 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 it appears not. And it, like, it, it was fascinating to see how different all of the libertarians I follow reacted to that because mm-hmm. they're like, this... Is this is this a joke or is this the onion? Is this real? Yeah. And then the plenty of conservatives were like sharing it as if it was a credible argument in defense of 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 the police. And I thought it was the most horrific argument that I've ever seen in defense of police and police unions, because it is like uh, the the unionization, the public employee unions are are systemically protecting bad actors, and and I could see where. Um, good cops and and I, I think you know government corrupts everybody if you stay inside the government for too long but you could see where um, you know well you don't have to see you don't have to imagine this like uh, cops that do complain about abuse of power quite often get punished for it oh yeah I mean talk to any I, I've got plenty of friends who are cops my neighbors retired DC homicide I have an uncle who was law enforcement his entire life um, I I don't think I've ever heard a cop disagree with the proposition that if you threaten that that blue coat of silence, in other words, if, if you're the kind of cop who who will, is willing, for example, to testify against other cops or to challenge, um, you know, a partner if they if they fill out a report incorrectly, you know, with a misrepresentation yeah. of what really happened, you will have a very short and very unpleasant career in law enforcement. Yeah. Let's let's move on to your second point because this this one is is sort of fascinating to me. I'm a big fan of Better Call Saul, so everything <laughs> everything I know about the legal system I learned from from Saul Goodman. But uh, you 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 talk about about plea bargaining has essentially replaced your constitutional right to a trial by jury. Yeah, it has. Yeah, so a um, couple of um, statistics that that we should keep firmly in mind um, today. of all criminal convictions come from guilty pleas instead of constitutionally prescribed trials. That alone is an extraordinarily suspicious figure, and here's why. Think about what it would take to get somebody to waive one of the most important and hallowed rights in the whole Constitution. If you went back in time and you could ask the founders, which, which right do you think is the most important? I suspect many of them would have said the right to a trial when you're accused by the government of committing a crime. Uh, And it's valuable from a purely practical standpoint as well, because think about it this way. When the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to the satisfaction of a unanimous jury 
that you did whatever it is they said you did, there's all kinds of ways for them to mess that up. Even if you're guilty, they could have, you know, a break in the chain of, of, of you know, evidence. They could have a witness who doesn't show up. I mean, it goes on and on. So think about how much pressure you would have to apply to somebody to get them to choose instead of the, um, the, the possibility of an acquittal and freedom if they exercise their constitutional right to a jury trial, what on earth would make them choose the certainty of a conviction and punishment by condemning themselves? And the answer to that is that in our system, prosecutors are authorized to use nearly every single technique that we associate with the Spanish Inquisition as long as they don't actually employ physical torture. They can threaten you with life in prison, for example, while offering you a three-year deal. That actually was just happened in a case that the Ohio Supreme Court upheld. A woman was offered uh, a three-year plea deal. She was alleged to have been an accomplice in a murder. Uh, she maintained her innocence, and actually, frankly, from the opinions, it looks like she probably was innocent. Um, but she went to trial, and she got life without parole. They can threaten you with that. They can threaten your family members, and this happens all the time. And we may get into this. It's credibly reported to have happened to Michael Flynn. Um, if you refuse to plead guilty, if you refuse to waive your constitutional right to a jury trial, prosecutors can and do threaten to go after your family members, figure out some way to indict them. And I tell people, uh, I have children, you know, and if you had a choice, if you were trying to coerce me into doing something and you had a choice between physically torturing me or hurting one of my kids, I can tell you for sure that you'd want to go after my kids because right. that's how you're going to get compliance from me. You threaten one of my kids and I'll sign my name to anything you put in front of me. And that's how American plea bargaining works. So law and order conservatives, and I, I like bringing up Michael Flynn because I, I think law and order conservatives... Um, to quote Lindsey Graham in another context, if you haven't have done anything wrong, you have nothing to hide. And I, I see both the left and the right use that argument um, depending on the circumstances. And, and in this case, the, the left would have defended it because the, the, the state was going after Michael Flynn and conservatives were outraged that the deep state was using all of these, these vicious and dishonest tactics to essentially take down uh, someone that turns out to be innocent. And they went after his son. And, and so like it, it should be a teachable moment, but we seem to sort of bounce back and forth and, and everybody falls into that, that sort of mythology that the justice system is equally applied and fair and honest. And, and you're, uh, you're, you're red pilling us right now. You're saying it's not true. No, it's, it's a disgrace. Uh, I, I take the position that there is absolutely no reason to have confidence in the integrity of any guilty plea obtained by virtue of a guilty or, or a, a conviction obtained through a guilty plea unless you know all the facts of the case. And chances are you won't. Why? Because we don't really do public jury trials anymore, or at least we hardly do any. In the federal system, 97.4% of all criminal convictions come from guilty pleas. And that should make everybody really angry. Let's put aside for a moment, and we should come back to it, I hope we do, uh, the, the well-documented fact that some fairly significant percentage of those guilty pleas are in fact of innocent people. So we are definitely coercing innocent people into pleading guilty, as appears to have happened with Michael Flynn. Yeah. But even putting that aside, even if that never happens to you or anybody that you care about, we are systematically driving underground that which the founders of this country said should be in the sunlight. Think about the prosecution of Jeffrey Epstein which is now never going to happen in open court. But the, 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 the US DOJ had him in their sights eight years ago. They had him dead to rights. If that case had gone to trial the way the Constitution prescribes, we'd know a lot more about what happened. 
And among other things, we know who his co-conspirators are. We don't know that right now. We may never know that. That's because DOJ decided to plead that case out instead of taking it to trial. You could say the same thing about the, um, the Varsity Blues uh, prosecutions. I don't know how many of those people are guilty. I assume some of them are. But I also know there's a line between promising, for example, a certain amount of money if they'll name a, you know, a building after you. Oh, and then guess what? Your kid gets in, right? Is that illegal? I don't think so. I don't know where the line is between that and what some of the people in this case were doing. But it's very clear that the federal government did not want to have to take those cases to trial for a variety of reasons, I think. And so far, they've been successful in getting everybody uh, to knuckle under and plead guilty. How? By threatening people with 20 years they brought additional conspiracy charges against Lori Laughlin, for example, threatened her with 20 years and then settled for two months. That is mind boggling. I mean, there is, that's the kind of thing we associate with dictators and tyrants yeah. that bring that kind of pressure to bear with people. And that's why I say there's absolutely no reason to have faith in the integrity of any conviction obtained through a guilty plea once you know the kind of pressure they bring to bear to people. Maybe most of those people are guilty. Maybe they're not. But you know what? You have no idea and neither do I. And, and you've written about this. Uh, what is the name of the book that you wrote in 2013? Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. Because the check in all of this, like when, when you have uh, incentives misaligned and, and runaway abuses of justice would be the judicial system. Right. And for reasons that hopefully you can explain to me, they turn a blind eye to the essential, essential elimination of trial by jury. They have. And it's, I think, you know, I, I yield to no one in my condemnation of certain features of our judiciary. I think if I had to pick one, the single most irresponsible thing that the, the U.S. judiciary has done, it, it is turning a blind eye to coercive plea bargaining. Coerced adjudication has become the lifeblood of American criminal justice. And here's how insane it is. If you were being questioned by a police officer in a holding room, and a prosecutor came in and saw the police officer with his hand up about to just, you know, slap you across the face, the prosecutor would stop that police officer immediately because any confession that you offer after being threatened that way would be inadmissible. That prosecutor can excuse the police officer from the room, sit down, look at you and say, Mr. Kibbe, if you don't plead guilty, I'm going to, instead of going for, you know, two years on this relatively low level, you know, a theft charge, I'm going to bump it up to mail fraud and conspiracy to commit mail fraud. You'll be going in for 30 years. And furthermore, I will go, I will comb through your, uh, you know, your wife and your parents and everybody you love. I will go through all of their tax forms, everything they've ever done. Uh, if, if some of them run a business, we'll look at everybody they hired and we will find something. And we'll threat, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll indict them as well. Now, do you want to plead guilty? And the entire judiciary will just turn a blind eye to that as if it's somehow completely distinguishable from a single slap from a police officer. That is how our system operates. And the judiciary has turned a completely blind eye to it. And as a constitutional scholar and a citizen and a patriot, it disgusts me. One of the uh, one of the things you argue. I didn't read the whole book, but I, I I read a bunch of it this morning. And one of the things you argue that that gets back to um, sort of a classical liberal critique of the legislative process is that there seems to be a naive belief that legislation somehow reflects accurately reflects the will of the people, and that the you know if if Congress passed it, it must be what the people want. Nothing can be further from the truth. I can't think of a single piece of legislation (laughs) that reflects that. No, it is. It's extraordinarily naive. It's a cop-out. I mean, if you think about the one way to think of the American system is that um, you think of um, 
laws as a kind of a factory, you know, that produces widgets. And the role of the judiciary, or an important role of judiciary, is to be a kind of an inspector looking at these widgets as they come off, you know, out of the machine. Um, and if you have in your mind this fundamentally mistaken view that the people who are putting the widgets together, you know, this team of German scientists, you know, with the sterile dressings and the thing on their head, and they've all got PhDs, you know, and, and, and they're completely dispassionate, and they, they stay up all night worrying about the quality of the widgets, um, you're probably going to be somewhat more lax when it comes to playing your role of inspecting them. That, and that is fundamentally the view of the American judiciary. Um, but when it turns out that actually what's going on, you know, is this base, you know, sort of a bunch of crack-addled chimpanzees um, just throwing things together, then you might take your role as an inspector on that line more seriously because mm -hmm. that actually is closer to the truth. But you've got a judiciary that, that in effect treats the production of laws and the whole system by which they are created you know, as if it's virtually infallible and there's not really much role for them that they either need to or should play in taking those defective widgets or laws off the line. And that's, you know, I think that's a complete abdication of judicial responsibility. Um, Randy Barnett and my former colleague uh, Evan Burnick have written a lot about this in terms of the judicial duty to, to perform this kind of quality control uh, role that the judiciary has virtually abdicated. I assume there are certain judges of, of a certain lineage, intellectual lineage, that, that do embrace that, that, that more Activist. Can I say activist? Because it, it feels active. I prefer active. Yeah. Um, I mean, think about a judge who, for example, Oklahoma went on a tear for a while where they were just banning books left and right. And uh, for reasons I, I suppose we could surmise. But, you know, you think about a judge that strikes down, for example, a ban on Harry Potter books. I'm not sure they actually have banned Harry Potter books, but I could imagine it. Um, that's not judicial activism. That's just a judge being active. Right. Yeah. And um, reasonable people, by the way, can certainly disagree about you know, where the line is between just being active in discharging your constitutional duty uh, to, uh, to assess the constitutionality of laws versus activism, which is imposing your own personal, you know, choice. Yeah. At IJ, we developed the concept of judicial engagement to, to kind of identify the kind of uh, judicial activity that we want them to engage in. And I would say one of the most clear-headed and consistent proponents of judicial engagement on the federal judiciary is Don Willett, a former Texas Supreme Court justice who's now on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and whose name has been on the Trump shortlist for Supreme Court. He wrote an opinion in which he explicitly, in actually in an economic liberty case when he was a Texas Supreme Court justice, embracing the concept of judicial engagement and explaining, I think very eloquently, how and why it is different from judicial activism and why it's important to distinguish those two and to embrace judicial engagement, even as we decry judicial activism. Yeah. Number three, and, and, and I, don't, I don't know how you rank these, but this is this one we are talking a lot about is the uh, qualified immunity of, of law enforcement and, and prosecutors. Talk a little bit about, about where that special treatment comes from. Yeah. I think one of the most important questions you can ask when you clothe certain government officials with the amount of power and discretion that we do, um, think about a police officer who, who carries a weapon issued to him or her by the state and is charged with enforcing this extraordinary, you know, complicated spider web of laws. That discretion and that power is an extraordinary combination, and it really matters tremendously how accountable that person is for the exercise of that authority and that discretion. And you might think that police would be held to a very, very high level of accountability, and in fact, they certainly should be. 
The reality is that compared to us, they are in fact held to an extremely low standard of accountability. In fact, it's not even on par with the accountability that you and I are held to. Police and other government officials, including especially prosecutors, are held to an extraordinarily low level of accountability. And the cornerstone of this, what I describe as a near zero accountability policy for law enforcement is the qualified immunity doctrine, which is a judicially invented rule that says that even when a police officer or other government official violates your rights, so there's no dispute they violated your rights, that your, your ability to, to sue them, to bring a civil rights action, um, will depend on your ability to not to show that they violated your rights. That's not enough. You have to be able to show that they violated your rights in a particular way that is already the subject of a pre-existing case in that jurisdiction where the judiciary has said under nearly identical circumstances you can't do that thing. And if that case isn't on the books, then this doctrine, this defense of qualified immunity will apply and your civil rights lawsuit against that government official will be dismissed not because they didn't violate your rights, but because you couldn't find a case already on point that said they weren't supposed to do it that way. Are there examples where like that's that's quite a um, it's quite a minefield to get through to to get justice? Are there actually examples where someone has gotten justice with all of those protect special protections? The most extraordinary thing has happened in the last couple of weeks. We have seen a series of decisions from. Um, well, the circuit courts, these are the federal courts of appeals where most decisions get made. The Supreme Court takes only about 60 or 65 cases every year. There are tens of thousands of cases that go through the federal courts. So if you're involved in any kind of a federal court case, the chances are that it is going to end at the court of appeals level. So that's where the really important action is in some ways. We've seen this, and, and who knows if it's a blip or not, but just in the last few weeks, we've seen several different uh, federal appellate courts reject qualified immunity. In other words, insist that that police officer stay in the case and be answerable for their conduct under circumstances where I think even a month ago uh, they would have just rubber stamped it and, and dismissed the case. And I think it's likely in part because of the, the blowback from the George Floyd homicide in Minneapolis and also this growing, increasing awareness. Think about eminent domain. Nobody knew what that was before that kilo eminent domain case that IJ did, and I helped work on that case. Civil forfeiture, you mentioned that earlier in our conversation. Who knew what that was 10 years ago? Now, a lot of people know what it is. I think we're seeing the same thing with qualified immunity. Two months ago, had you ever heard about it? Probably not. Yeah. Have you heard about it now? If you're plugged in at all, you, bet, you better believe it. That's, I mean, that's, that's really encouraging. And I've always had this theory that um, judges are just as responsive to public opinion and um, back in the ancient days when there were newspaper headlines, but, <laughs> but YouTube videos today, um, and congressional activity. We have Justin Amash now, the, the one libertarian member of Congress, has introduced legislation and he's, he's gotten at least some support from, from Democrats and Republicans. Yep. Um, Mitch McConnell apparently is not a fan, but Mitch McConnell's not a fan of anything that's Justin Wright, so <laughs> I, I said that on camera, but... Um, but it, it, like, do you think that, um, and maybe it's all of the above, but how do we change the system? Because this, I mean, you're, you're describing something that's rotten to the core, yeah. and there's very strong coalitions of, of incentivized people. You, you told, called it an industrial complex. Um, those are hard to break. Yep. Is it public opinion? Is it um, legislation? Is it getting better judges? How do we fix it? It's not easy. I... I I don't want to be sort of melodramatic, but I think that is when you're talking about America's criminal justice system, asking a question, how do we fix it, is a bit like 
saying to somebody who's got a very aggressive form of cancer, how do we cure it? Um, I would say that the two challenges are on par with one another. And that there's a lot of reason to use the cancer metaphor when talking about uh, America's criminal justice system. I mean, the role, for example, of coercive plea bargaining, the extent to which it has displaced the constitutionally prescribed mechanism for adjudicating criminal charges, which is, of course, a jury trial, is unbelievably similar to cancer in terms of like what it has done in the body politic. So I think the answer, and I don't want to overtax the metaphor, but I think it's useful for at least one more step. The answer is to recognize that if it is fair to say that America's criminal justice system has become a kind of a cancer in the body politic, then it's necessary to consider responses that are as extreme as what we would uh, think about with somebody who actually does have a very aggressive form of cancer. The kinds of highly toxic chemotherapy, for example, and radiation therapy that, you know, makes your hair fall out or, or um, you know, is, is highly debilitating. So I think we need to do two things. Um, I think that it's important to continue grinding it out in the political process, like we're seeing with qualified immunity, uh, like we're seeing, you know, baby steps. I wish they'd called it the Baby Step Act, the First Step Act, yeah. but it's, you know, it, it, it is progress. I think we also need to think about it, um, sort of non-traditional therapies, so to speak. And what I mean by that is changes that can be imposed upon the system without its acquiescence. I think the system has become implacable. The law enforcement lobby is probably the second or third strongest in the country. They are deeply committed to the status quo, and they are extraordinarily effective at maintaining it. I think there are some opportunities to impose change, to impose solutions from outside the system that the system is basically defenseless to prevent. And we can talk about a couple of those, but uh, that's where, certainly uh, running the criminal justice shop at Cato, that's where we've put our focus, is on responses to the criminal justice system that can be imposed unilaterally while other people continue trying to grind it out through the political process. So I think both are important. So give me a specific example of something that could be imposed from the outside unilaterally. Imagine uh, if you were to put together a 10 or 15 minute explainer video that very compellingly, and I'm talking about like with Morgan Freeman narrating it, you know, maybe in Kim Kardashian acting some of it out, uh, that, that told an incredibly compelling way, but concisely, um, the role of, of systemic racism in our system, the ability of people serving on juries to protect one another from a system that is out of control, the use by the government of, uh, you know, disparate, disparate enforcement of drug laws in order, you know, for a as a mechanism of, of revenue generation and social control, all of that kind of thing. And then you made certain suggestions to people who have seen that video, such as get yourself impaneled as a juror if you can, and once you are impaneled as a juror in a criminal case, you should keep in mind that you can ask any question that comes to your mind. And a question you might want to ask is, what will be the consequences for this defendant if we vote to convict? Because then you might find out, you know what, this person's looking at life in prison, you know, for a relatively low level uh, check fraud, which is an actual Supreme Court case. Uh, you could also ask, may we know what the plea offer, if any, was in this case? And if you are not given that information. If your questions are not answered, you can draw any conclusion from that that you want. One conclusion you might draw is there's at least one person in the courtroom doesn't want you to know that information. And if you think that is relevant, for example, to your decision whether to engage in jury nullification, um, I prefer to call it conscientious acquittal because I think that's more accurate, yeah. um, you can certainly do that. And if in your mind, 
the government in this particular case has not made both the factual case for guilt and the moral case for whatever punishment they propose to inflict, you might choose to just acquit that person until you're satisfied that the outcome would be just. Now imagine that you could ensure that virtually everybody eligible for jury service would have seen that video in a particular jurisdiction within, let's say, a day or so of having been called for jury duty. Do you think that would radically change the, the dynamics in that jurisdiction in terms of plea offers, in terms of you know whether defendants are more inclined to exercise their right to trial, because I can assure you it would. I've talked to dozens of criminal defense attorneys who've told me, oh yeah, that would, that would change everything. Um, there's nothing the government can do to prevent anything that I have just described. There is a First Amendment right to show a film. Yeah. There's a First Amendment right to micro-target that film to particular people. And the system would be completely powerless in the face, if, if everybody in a community got together and said, you know what, I like the message of that film I just saw, let's do it. The system would be completely powerless to respond and it would, I think just that alone could achieve something close to a complete reset. Yeah, I, I love this strategy because it doesn't require politics to fix the problem exactly. because we, we could talk all day about how politics created the problem. I don't know how politics is gonna solve the problem. And it's it's public education, and I I go I vacillate back and forth. I used to be quite romantic about the the power of of video and storytelling and the internet and democratization of knowledge and all that stuff. And and then Twitter turned into a, a cesspool. Right. But but I like that idea because I, I think uh, um, we we're, we've been using this phrase um, on a new documentary of ours. If you want justice, it's just us. I love it. Um, because no one's going to do it if we're not going to do it. Let me give you one other example, if I may. Do you know where in the process many, if not most, people render their case indefensible? In other words, some virtually everybody, let's say 60 80% people who go through the system, um, do something that, call, that makes it essentially impossible to defend them in a criminal case. Do you know when that happens for most people? It's in the initial encounter with the police officer. It's because police have become so adept at cajoling at deceiving, at intimidating people into saying or doing something that's not in their best interest, whether it's making an overt confession, whether it's giving up the name of somebody who can then incriminate you or allowing a warrantless search of your home or your car. Imagine, and I've been working on this actually kind of as a passion, passion project, imagine a smartphone app that was able to provide free live legal representation during that initial encounter with law enforcement, not just so to make sure you know your rights, but to empower you to actually assert those rights and do it effectively. That is another kind of thing that would reset the whole system. Because why? Because now what would happen is people would stop incriminating themselves in the first five or 10 minutes, mm -hmm. and the system would have to work so much harder to get each conviction, they wouldn't have the bandwidth to do so many. In other words, it's almost as if you would narrow the aperture of the criminal justice wood chipper by causing people to make fewer mistakes at the beginning, which makes the government have to work harder to get each conviction. And they're not gonna be able to turn around and double their funding. You know, go to the legislature and say, oh, people are actually doing a lot better job not incriminating themselves during that initial encounter with law enforcement. We need twice the resources. Uh-uh, they're yeah. not gonna get it. Yeah. So, um, and we, you know, the, 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 the beautiful thing is we could actually go on probably for, for uh, at least half the afternoon with ideas like the ones we've been talking about here that again can be imposed unilaterally on a system that has become implacable. Uh, and I think that, that when people realize that we should be putting as much effort into these kind of you know, unilateral workarounds as we should in, in grinding it out through the political process, 
we, we could see a fundamental reset of the criminal justice system within 10 years. Yeah. Well, let's, um, I'd love to work with you on any of those projects because they're, right. they're more in, in our wheelhouse. Um, but I'm, um, I don't know if I'm quoting Mao right now, but when it comes to reform, <laughs> we should let a thousand flowers bloom yes. because I, I, think, I think politics matters, even if it's just a platform for educating people. And I think Justin Amash is doing a good job of elevating the issue. I think I think policy and litigation matters. I think getting the right judges in there matters. But but to me, ultimately, um, getting people to sort of take back that responsibility that I, I think liberty is a responsibility. And if you're not willing to do it, I don't know why you would think someone else would do it for you. So let's let's if you're interested, let's work on all that stuff. And so interested, yes. And I've I've learned so much. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.